This is the IBJ podcast for the week of July the 10th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. If you're looking to launch your own business in the Indianapolis area, it seems like you'd want to stay away from starting a coffee shop. For starters, we all now have access to high-end coffee makers at home or in the office. You have to figure that Starbucks and Dunkin' have nabbed the primo retail locations, and the five dozen or so locally-based coffee shops seem to have the market pretty much covered. Two years ago, Sajad Shah entered the coffee shop market with his eyes wide open and a hook that can make a big difference. His coffee shops would have a built-in audience through a very popular Instagram account that he founded, and they would be tied to the account's overarching mission, promoting the Muslim community and raising millions of dollars for Muslims in crisis around the world. Indeed, the name of the Instagram account is Muslims of the World, and it currently has about 680,000 followers. The coffee shops are called MOTW, Muslims of the World, Pastries, and Coffee. In just two years, Shaw has gone from one shop to four, located in Carmel, Fishers, Castleton, and on West 38th Street in the International Marketplace District in Indianapolis proper. In this week's edition of the IBJ podcast, we break the news that Shaw is planning an aggressive expansion outside central Indiana, starting with a 3,000-square-foot shop expected to open within a few months in the Chicagoland area. Within five years, he hopes to have 40 to 50 MOTW shops in the U.S., a mix of company-owned and franchise locations. Shaw didn't have a lot of experience with coffee when he got started, but he did have many years in corporate accounting and consulting, and he thinks he's landed on a formula for lean and mean coffee shops that's easily repeatable. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Sajad Shaw, founder and owner of MOTW Pastries and Coffee. Sajad, thank you for making time today. Thank you so much for having me. As our listeners probably be able to tell, we are inside a coffee shop. Right now, we're going to go with it and, and see how uh, how this works. Let's do it. Uh, this is the Carmel location. That is correct. This is our newest location that opened about two months ago. This is the fourth. That is correct. Coffee yep, and pastry location. location. Uh, this opened in the last two years. Yes, that is correct. Uh, so before we like get into history, I just wanted to ask you, like, what's the rush? <laughs> you know what? I'll tell you, time is of the essence. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that we are, we have a mission, we have a goal. And uh, to be honest, we think four shops in two years is actually pretty slow growth. So uh, we, we're hoping to speed up that process over the next couple of years. Wow. What were you doing before you opened the first one? So I was an accountant. I actually worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers and then I worked at BKD. I was doing uh, tax accounting for uh, mid-sized to big firms. You know, loved it uh, somewhat. And then um, I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. So after a while that grew and eventually I started my own uh, Instagram page, Muslims of the World, which was highlighting stories of Muslim people, um, which turned into a nonprofit and then eventually now has turned into the coffee shop. Okay, so we're going to get to all that. When I was figuring out how to, how to start the interview, I was like, well, we can't talk about the coffee and pastry shops without first talking about the Instagram account. Yes. And I'm like, well, we can't really talk about the Instagram account until we talk about what it was like to grow up in central Indiana yes. as Muslim. And then I thought, you know, we really can't talk about growing up in central Indiana. 
I think in a way that is true for a lot of us without talking about our grandparents. Exactly. Because our you know, grandparents or their parents brought us here. Absolutely. Uh, what is the story of your grandfather? Yes. Yeah, so this story kind of went uh, viral here in Indiana, spe specifically Carmel. So my grandfather was a wonderful, wonderful, incredibly talented mathematician in Pakistan. And um, what ended up happening about 50, 60 years ago, uh, Carmel High School was actually recruiting teachers from uh, different parts of the country uh, and different parts of the world. And there was a teacher there that ended up recruiting my grandfather from Pakistan here to Indiana. And in Indiana, when he landed, he ended up going to Carmel High School to teach calculus. And it's a, it's a really crazy story because at that time, Indiana was not diverse at all. You know, he came here with his, you know, cultural norms and customs from Pakistan. And, you know, he was teaching, you know, your typical Carmel High School student, um, which is, you know, not from Pakistan. And uh, they, they fell in love with him. He was he kind of had a different way of uh, teaching, different style of teaching. Um, my mom and her brothers all grew up uh, here in Carmel, Indiana. They went to Carmel High School. And when we opened up our Carmel location, tons of his students ended up coming just to pay <laughs> respect to him. And they all told the stories about him and this Facebook threads about, uh, you know, this, some of the stuff he said, what he's saying and how he taught and the nicknames he had for the students. And it's been a really beautiful experience. But yeah, yeah, my grandpa is how we landed and ended up in Carmel, Indiana. That's incredible. And this was in the 60s when he came over? It was in the 60s, yeah. It was in the wow. 60s. So he came here a very long time. I mean, my mom said that she was probably the only brown person in Carmel. Uh, I think there was one other brown family in Carmel at the time. Yeah. And, and for folks who are from Indianapolis, I mean, Carmel right now is maybe the fourth or fifth largest city. But, you know, when I was growing up and when your grandfather was here, it was tiny. It's, it was very tiny. It's night and day difference, you know, to, to see what Carmel is today, even what Fishers is today compared to 20 years ago, even uh, it's night and day difference. So what was it like for you? You didn't grow up in Carmel, as I recall. You grew up in Fishers? That's correct. So, okay. well, I actually was born in uh, Pike Township area. And then in fifth grade, we moved to uh, Fishers. So I went to the HSC school district, started at Fall Creek Elementary, then went to the intermediate, and then ended up at Hamilton Southeastern High School. And as a Muslim person, mm -hmm. what was it like growing up in Fishers? You know, I'll say this, that, you know, I think that now the the indiana that we see today is super diverse i mean now it's it's very normal to see all kinds of people in indiana uh, but i would say that even maybe 15 10 15 years ago i mean it was it, it wasn't that diverse specifically fishers and carmel i wouldn't say that um i dealt with much racism but a lot of that had to do with the fact that i grew up you know here in america i was I, aside from my skin and my my skin color and my religion i was you know I was still as american as you know cherry pie so you know i got along with the rest of the students but i can't say the same about some of the other immigrant students that I saw at Hamilton Southeastern, you know, a lot of it, there was racism, there was bullying. I didn't really have to deal with that. But I saw I saw the ugly side of, you know, people that did have to come as immigrants to this country. Oh, I did want to ask you, you probably were 10 or 11 at 9-11. Yeah. What was that experience like? Did, did you, you know, feel any impact from that it at all? Was a, I would say that was probably like the worst day for Muslims in America because, you know, unfortunately, you know, we didn't get any memo like, hey, that that was going to happen. And, you know, but unfortunately, we had to deal with the uh, the negative effects of like how people viewed Islam, how people viewed Muslims at that time. Uh, my mom wore a headscarf, for example. So we would go to the mall. And at that time, I lived in Pike Township. Um, but, you know, people would say, you know, call her terrorists and, you know, say things like that. And, you know, as a young kid, you would have to experience that and watch that. Um, you know, somebody tried, you know, even like drowning her at the YMCA, like at the swimming pool. So, I mean, we dealt with a lot of people. A lot of Muslims were killed during that time uh, from hate crimes. So it was a horrible, horrible time. And, you know, definitely I had to deal with that, you know, going to, and, and I was probably 
primary one of the reasons why I wanted to just be, you know, like undercover Muslim. It's like, yes, I'm Muslim, but it's not something I want to talk about because, you know, it, it's not a it's not really a thing that's looked at favorably in this country. Um, at that time, it's not looked at favorably in the whole world. It was a, it was a, it was an event that like kind of shook up the whole world. So uh, you graduated from Hamilton Southeastern. OK. And then you went to Butler. Is that right? Butler. Yes, I did my undergrad in accounting at Butler and then I followed it with my master's in public accounting at Butler. So when did you graduate from grad school? So I graduated probably. Maybe, I couldn't even tell you, actually. Oh, nine. it was probably like around 14. Yeah, 2014. Oh, okay. And this was about the time where you started the Instagram yes, account. Yes, yes. So when I was about maybe a sophomore, junior year, there was a page that was called Humans of New York, which was a photographer journalist out in New York City who was highlighting stories of just regular people. And at that time, I said, you know, man, it's amazing what this guy has been able to do. Um, he's he's bringing people together based off these intimate stories. So I was like, well, if they're able to kind of, you know, champion these stories of regular day to day people in New York, we can easily do that with Muslim people as well. So I started taking pictures and sharing stories of Muslim friends that I had, family members that I had. And uh, that's how the Instagram page started. And it kind of just, you know, took off from there. So wait, you were like a sophomore? I would say I'm a sophomore. Okay. Yeah. Sophomore, junior. Yeah. But the Instagram account, I think, was started in 2014. 2014. So maybe I was, maybe it was junior, senior year. All those years kind of blend in. Yeah. But it was, it was definitely started <laughs> when I was in college. Yeah. Okay. Do you remember what the first post was? I think the first post was maybe like one of my friends like saving a cat. And it's like, you know, my friend saved a cat downtown Indianapolis. And at the end, we were just like, yeah, he's Muslim. He saved a cat. Look how great this guy is. <laughs> and people were just like, oh, my God, Muslims are great people. <laughs> and how often would you post at the beginning? Um, you know, at first I was at the kind of the mercy of like trying to get the stories. I mean, as a, as a journalist, you probably know it's not always easy, but... Um, then what ended up happening is once we shared these stories, people started submitting stories themselves. Um, and then it kind of became like a snowball effect. And then we were sometimes posting two, three times a day. And currently you have, I think, about 660,000 followers. Yeah, maybe close to 670,000 followers, something around that. About number. what time did you sort of get up to that plateau? I would say that that number um, really kind of grew when we were doing the charity work because people really enjoyed the charity work that we did. And it started attracting all kinds of people, Christian, Jewish people, all kinds of people started following the page, not just Muslims. So I would say that maybe that was I, I hit those numbers close to like three, four years ago, maybe. Okay. Now, explain how the, the charity work works, so yeah. that aspect of, yeah. of uh, Muslims of the world. Yeah. So what ended up happening one day was there was a mosque in downtown Indianapolis in George, on Georgetown Road called Masjid al-Huk. And what ended up happening is that masjid was lit on fire. So it was, uh, people don't know if it was a hate crime or if it was an accident. But at the time, I was sharing these stories of Muslim people and people really liked it. We maybe had maybe 50,000, 60,000 followers at that time. So I ended up sharing stories of people in that mosque that was that were going to that mosque, mosque, taxi cab drivers, you know, regular just people that were just attending that mosque. It was it was kind of a mosque that was focused mostly on West Africans. So a lot of them came to this country. They didn't have much. And, and, and that mosque was like their special place. So when we shared these stories on Muslims of the world, we actually put like a GoFundMe link just to see if anyone would want to donate. And I think that they needed to raise about $70,000 to rebuild the entire mosque. So I posted those stories maybe at 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. Just saying, you know what? Hey, let's share these stories. Let's see what happens. Maybe we'll raise some money for the mosque.
the next morning we woke up, it was at about $70,000 and 200 bucks. So, you know, we rebuilt that mosque and we used the, the efforts of people all around the world following this Instagram page. Um, and that's when we realized, hey, we have something special here. I mean, this is not a small amount of money raised. And then we continue to do projects like that for years and years to come. You know, we occasionally do like these one-off projects for our local community, but we try to like focus on like bigger causes, things that are happening in Yemen, Syria. Um, the nice thing is though, we always partner with registered charities. So we never handle the money ourselves because, you know, that can kind of get messy. We wanted to be able to raise money, give it to a registered charity, and then they kind of do what they're supposed yeah. to do. So you would highlight information, for example, about, um, I mean, the, the the famine or hunger crisis in, in Yemen. 100%. And say, uh, you know, here here is how this is impacting people on the ground. Uh -huh. And then uh, through... Like a fundraising platform. Yes, like, it could be GoFundMe. We we sometimes launch good. It's it's another platform. Right. And so you draw attention to it that way, but say go through this platform, and that platform probably is connected to like a registered exactly. not for profit, and then the money goes straight into those registered charities' bank accounts. Right. So it's yeah. not going to you. Yes, and you're deciding exactly. like where the money goes. Yeah. So like yeah. for example, different humanitarian causes, um, different humanitarian charities have different like expertise. So there's charities that specialize in what's happening in Syria, what's happening in Yemen. Some charities that focus focus on what's happening in Bangladesh with the Rohingya refugees. So depending on what we're trying to focus on or what stories we're, we're promoting, we would work with different charities based off that. And over the years, can you kind of bring me up to date with how much total through your efforts have you been able to raise for these, so these we, projects? And yeah, so they actually fact checked another another media company actually uh, fact checked all of our things. They talked to all the charities and they confirmed that we raised about 20 million dollars for different humanitarian causes. So, yes, as of like, as of now. As of right now, that's amazing. Now. Yes. So we did that probably in the past, maybe yeah, four to six years. And then in the meantime, <laughs> while all this is happening, you think, well, we need to open a coffee shop. Yes. Where do you get this idea? So my wife is from Yemen. They say that Yemen has like the best coffee beans and my wife makes a really great chai. So what ended up happening is during this, you know, um, time that we're building up Muslims, a world nonprofit, it was all like on social media. So a lot of people that come in or, you know, that we would meet in, in person, they, they would be like, oh, like, you know, this amazing work that you do. Like, I wish you had like something physical that you could, we could kind of like support and, you know, kind of see like what you do and like, you know, highlight the work that you do. So we were thinking and we we're thinking about things that we could do. And my wife has this chai that like all of our friends would come to our house and get. So I'm like, you know, what kind of physical place could we open and kind of continue to bring people together and highlight what Muslim people are like and showcase the beauty of Islam. And um, I'm sipping my wife's chai and I'm like, why don't we open up a coffee shop? <laughs> um, you know, so so that's what ended up happening. And we opened up our first one. And, you know, chai has been our number one seller. But it's it's it, that's kind of how we got into it. And then my, my wife's sister actually had a coffee shop in Connecticut. So we kind of like learned how they operated the business. And we said, look, it doesn't seem like it's that hard. Let's kind of like do our homework and, and, and get into this business. So. So are you still an accountant up until this point, at least? So the only accounting that I do is the accounting for our own coffee shops. Uh, yeah, and that's the only accounting that I care about and I want to do. I do not want to go back to accounting at all. <laughs> so when did you stop uh, being a full-time accountant? I would say that I stopped when Muslims of the world started to pick up and we were doing like these fundraising trips, these humanitarian trips, traveling to different countries. That's when I kind of like told, you know, BKD that, hey, you know, I think I want to put my two-week notice in. And then, you know, I ended up doing the coffee shops. And then at that point, like just the, the accounting just went out the door. Like I, I barely remember even a lot of the accounting terms. So, so you just jumped into coffee shops. I you mean, something right that into. the world has absolutely no lack of. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can look around probably yes. point in any direction and That's eventually true. it's going to hit a coffee shop. That is true. But you thought, oh, well, we need to do is a coffee shop. 
Yeah. Not just because your wife makes great chai. Yes. But do I sense also because it's it's a good idea to create like a, a community gathering space? Yes, hundred percent. And you know, I was very intentional about. You know, some people said, you know, oh, you're putting Muslim in the name of your coffee shop. Like, actually, the Muslims were worried about that. Like, the, my Muslim friends that are, you know, in Fishers and in Indiana, they were like, no, don't do that. No one's going to come and support. But as you kind of look around the coffee shop right now, everyone here, it seems like they're not Muslim. And that was very intentional. I mean, now our staff, we, we used to have staff that were mostly Muslim because it was it, we were just starting on our own network. But this was the vision that I had for this company that, hey, eventually we're going to have people that come in here that may be Jewish, maybe Catholic, maybe Christian, maybe Hindu, whatever it may be, whatever they may be. But they're going to come in here and they're going to have a great experience at a business that's Muslim owned. And they are going to kind of walk out of here with positive connotations with the Muslim faith. And I think that, that we were successful with that. Okay, let's take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and my conversation with Sajad Shaw, owner of MOTW Pastries and Coffee. So the first coffee shop was on 38th Street in yes. that in that area. Help me with, with what we call that area. Uh, it's called the... Uh, International marketplace. Yeah, thank you. International marketplace. So, I mean, it very much would fit into that idea 100%. because you have, I mean, probably a hundred different nations. Yes. Uh, yes. In that area. Very diverse over there. Super diverse. Usually it's, it's food and drink yes. for the most part, yes. kind of businesses. So that made sense. Initially, were was most of your clientele Muslim or I would actually say no from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. I think that I think right now America's going through a time where they're they're um applauding diversity they're rewarding diversity they're they're, they're looking for uh marginalized communities that they can support when we when we started off 38th street you have to also remember that was a time where where george floyd was killed and and and, th and there was just this giant want of american people wanting to support you know different communities um whether it be black or brown or um any type of uh, marginalized community and um and we kind of i think we rode the, the the pigtails of that for sure because um a lot of people just came in that were not muslim and we were shocked at first um don't get me wrong i mean i would still say that a good amount of our customers are muslim and a lot of our staff was Muslim to begin with. Now I can say maybe we have three or four Muslim staff out of like the 30 employees that we have. And I would say that our customer base maybe is 5% Muslim at most. So you got kind of a sense, or at least maybe a blueprint of how to open a of coffee shop. Yes. Can you give me a sense of how much did it cost? How much will your startup cost yeah. for so the first one? I would say on average, uh, our typical coffee shop is going to cost somewhere between a quarter of a million dollars to 300000 Now, that is not all coffee shops. I mean, as you look at this caramel coffee shop, we have real trees. Uh, we flew in uh, a famous spray painter to do the spray painting. All the tables are custom tables. Floors are epoxied, mosaic tiles. So I would say our coffee shops are kind of like more kind of like the bougier, higher end, or <laughs> higher end coffee shops. Mm -hmm. But no, I'm sure that there are other coffee shops that have have opened for a hundred thousand, but in particular, an MOTW coffee and pastry shop is going to be about a quarter of a million dollars. Okay, so the first one was about it was about, about two fifty, yeah, about two fifty, yeah. And how did you finance that? 
So um, I ended up actually, uh, I was a consultant after my accounting days, I was a consultant for a lot of startup companies. Um, and I had equity in a lot of those companies. And, you know, some of them ended up selling and, you know, and, and we walked away with some good money. So the, the, the problem with, you know, having equity in a, in a startup company is once it sells, it's great because you get this rush of, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. But the thing is, if you don't know what to do with that money and you just kind of go crazy, you can lose that money fast. So I, I thought about it and I looked at this as an opportunity to see that, hey, these coffee shops, you know, I can take this lump sum of money that I have, build out these coffee shops, and then eventually they'll 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 spit out cash flow positive and if, if it's run and operated well, and then it's it'll be kind of like this thing that I can continue to grow. Wow. So you self-funded all of these? We self-funded everything. So there's no loans on anything. Everything's paid for. It's not easy to do that. But then again, I mean, I worked really, really hard. Okay. Coffee and pastries. So where is the coffee from? So we have created a really strong relationship with Tinker. They're based in Indianapolis. One thing that we wanted to be really intentional about, especially if we we're going to be a local Indiana coffee shop, we want our roaster to be local as well. So we work with Tinker. They're phenomenal. They have... Um, you know, a few locations at the airport. They just opened up their second location as well, uh, downtown Indianapolis. But we get our beans from them. Okay. So when I come to a place called Muslims of the World, yeah. um, I'm expecting my coffee to come from the world. Yes. Is it coming from Turkey somewhere? <laughs> you know, that is where we have false advertising. Um, <laughs> oh, <no>. it is. <laughs> you know, we have heard that comment before. I think that it's easier said than done because, you know, with these beans, you have to make sure that it's good quality beans. I mean, what Tinker does to prepare the beans for us, it's a series of processes and operations that they go through. Um, and we wanted to make sure that like, we just want to make sure that we ran a good coffee shop that has great coffee. Um, and, and they've been able to help us do that. But, you know, some coffee shops, they change their beans every week. They change their beans every month. That makes it really difficult. And then also it makes it so that the, the drinks are not consistent. So let's say a customer comes in and they get this really great drink. Well, if they come next month, it, it might be a different bean. It might taste different. So we want to keep consistency within all of our coffee shops. And the pastries, where are the pastries yes. come from? So some of the pastries we get from in-house, some of the pastries um, we get from Dearborn, Michigan. There's a, there's a huge Arab community there and they actually make the baklava. So all of our Arabic pastries are different variations of baklava. We have four different variations of baklava. We have baklava fingers, traditional baklava, bird nest pistachio, and burma. So those are all variations of baklava and we get those from Dearborn, Michigan. Okay. Now you say some of them come in house. Yes. So actually the way we started off 38th street, actually, we had two French pastry artists making all the pastries. And what happened is that what, when we opened up our second location, our third location, well, we realized that there's not actually a lot of French pastry artists out there. Um, so the demand got really high and, you know, but we did have one of our top selling pastries called the honeycomb and the honeycomb was a Yemeni bread stuffed with cream cheese sprinkled with sesame seeds. And then we drizzle honey on it. And that was actually made by a group of Yemeni women. So that's a Yemeni pastry and they actually make it in-house at our 38th Street location. Yeah. And then we distribute it amongst our other locations. What, what is the best way to put this? Are, are they cash flow positive? Yeah, definitely are, are cash they, flow positive. Is it too early to say they're profitable? Um, so I guess if we're looking at it from the perspective of did we did I receive my money back, my initial investment? The answer is no. And that's because I just continue to invest more and more, open up more coffee shops. So whenever we're getting to that point where we're about to recoup like our investment, we just open up another shop. You know, this private information, no one knows, but I guess I'll just share this on the IBJ podcast. Uh, <laughs> we uh, just signed a lease for our first uh, Chicago location. So, yes, yeah, so this that will be our fifth location, and that's going to probably open in the next three to four months. 
No kidding. Where in Chicago? Yes. Uh, you know, Lombard, Illinois. It's Lombard, Illinois. We Everyone just calls it Chicago, gotcha. but it's like a suburb of Illinois. So how, for how long have you been looking outside of Indianapolis? Um, I would say we were on the we were on a journey of looking outside Indianapolis for the past maybe I would say three, four months. So, I mean, when we opened up our Carmel location, maybe one week before that, we were looking at properties in Illinois. I think that the only way to like really kind of grow like Starbucks grew or like Dunkin' grew is that you always, whenever you open up one location, you already better have your next two locations in mind. Um, and now we're taking a really aggressive approach of growth. We are gonna eventually, um, probably by next month, be eligible for franchising. So we're working with a franchise attorney and now we're gonna start uh, franchising locations as well, all across the country. Oh, now, so how would that franchise, franchising work? It would be, so the I would, so yes. I, I live, let's say I, I live uh, in Roscoe Village in Chicago. Yes. I'm like, man, I really want one of these things. I'm going yes. to head head with that Starbucks over there. Yes, yes. Um, That's what so, I like to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so, so what do I need to do to open a franchise? So generally what happens, and we have a lot of customers that come in and say, oh my God, this is awesome. Are you guys franchising? So oftentimes the people that want a franchise, they come in already and they ask us. The thing about franchising though is until the paperwork is finalized, you're legally not allowed to like even promote a franchise. So we are in the process of working with a firm based in Michigan and they're um, they're going to have hopefully our paperwork done in the next two to three weeks. But once we let people know that, hey, we're available for franchising, what that looks like is they'll pay a franchise fee depending on the fee. It could be 50 to $65,000. And then what they end up doing is they have to pay for the entire build out of the coffee shop, wherever they want to build it out. Um, they have strict rules and guidelines that they have to follow. They have to have the same flooring, same table, same chairs, which we already have all the vendors for that. And then they give 5% royalty per sales per month. So it's similar to any other franchise that you would find. Um, normally it comes with a franchise fee and then a royalty per month. Okay. So, so for my shop, for example, so I would pay you the, the fee. Yes. Uh, and then you tell me, well, you probably can expect to pay 250 to 350 yep. to, for the free build out and to get open. Yep, that's correct. And then from there, uh, you're gonna pay us 5% of sales. Every month, yep. Every Everything month. else you guys keep. Okay, and you're gonna give me uh, intellectual property. You're gonna 100%. be- 100%. So you this get to use our these, trademark. These look like. Yeah, you get to use our trademark. Yeah. We, mm -hmm. we are gonna give you a, a manual that tells you how to open up an MOTW. We're gonna tell you how to make our ingredients, what our ingredients are, what our directions are. We basically are gonna give you the keys to what we have learned from our four shops in Indiana. And that will be enough to allow you to run a successful shop in whatever state you wanna be in. So is the Lombard location going to be that's one that we're gonna corporately own. So You're one thing that we're gonna continue to do is we're gonna continue to open up stores ourselves. And one of the nice things about that is as you continue to grow, well, then your cost for your product get cheaper because you're able to buy in a much bigger way. Now, all of a sudden, we're gonna supply our franchises with um, you know, cups, lids, straws. Well, now we can go order a million straws and get it from a lot cheaper than what we're getting it for now. So it's, it's a long-term goal, but also at the same time, it's exciting because you know we're gonna we're gonna show the world what Indiana's all about. So, <laughs> so in all of these locations, you're leasing. Yes, is that yes. right? Including the Lombard. Yes. Uh, hopefully, we eventually want to get do like what McDonald's does, which is like they own the property, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're, but soon, soon. You got to dream big. But also, like McDonald's, it'll be a combination of corporate locations and franchise locations. Absolutely, absolutely. And what what is uh what's the strategy behind that? Why do you both? So I think that what happens is one, we're really great operators. So one thing that about, about even our four stores here in Indiana, they're run really well. A lot of that has to do with our management, our leadership that 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 runs the company, but 
if we continue to open up corporate companies, what that ends up doing is it, it allows more people to experience MOTW. If more people experience MOTW, then more people are like, hey, I want a franchise. Also, when somebody like you who is looking at MOTW, you might look at us and say, well, they got four shops. It's a small business. I don't know if I really want to franchise with these guys. They seem kind of like still small time. As you kind of build up to 10, 12, 13 locations, it also gives mm. you credibility. And, and it makes you kind of feel a little bit more confident to want to franchise with us. Oh, that's fascinating. So in an extent, you're opening locations to advertise the fact yes, that you yes. exist. And, and, and also at the same time, if they're profitable and they're cash flow positive, it's, it's, it's kind of like the best of both worlds. You're, you're, you're making money and then you're also creating an advertising platform for yourself. So what is the vision, let's say, for five years? I would say by five years, I think that we should be at 40 to 50 locations at least. And then that's between corporately owned uh, stores and then also franchise stores. That's the minimum. If we're not there, you know, I'll just retire and consider my life a failure. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on now. You don't know what's going to happen. You got to dream big. You got to dream big. You don't know what's going to happen between you're now right, and then. You're right. It might be 100. Um, <laughs> but I think that, no, I mean, we, we dream big, but we push ourselves hard. And, and, and I think that. Um, you know, we have Shaz coming into a leadership role that this this company is going to see. And, you know, we're, we're in talks of also getting just like really great management, great, great mm -hmm. leaders to come to this company to kind of turn it into that, you know, next uh, Starbucks, but better. Well, that's what I was going to say is, you know, in order to be able to to grow that fast, I mean, you do need to bulk up. We need to bulk up big um, time. Yeah. yeah. And so, the, you know, the, and that's why the conversation and, and we actually had this ourselves is, do we want to take on investor money? Now, the nice thing is, we, you know, right now it's just myself and, and Shazeb, who's our, who's our regional manager. We get to call all the shots right now. But, you know, when you take on investor money, it's, it, it becomes a little bit different. You're not calling all the shots anymore. Um, you might not even be able to hire the, 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 the leadership that you want anymore. Some companies come in and say, we'll give you 10 million, but we're going to put in the CEO. We're going to put in the president. We're going to put in the vice president. Um, and if you don't do that, they might not do that. But one thing I would say is, by doing this franchise model, we're going to start getting franchise fees injected into the company. And we can be, if we're smart with that money and we utilize that money well, we have an opportunity to take that money and, you know, go hire really professional management so that we can like beef up our, our system. Because yeah, you're right. It's going to, we're going to need customer service. We're going to need, we're going to need more baristas. We're going to need trainers. We're going to need um, people who build out shops in different states. We're running into issues with Lombard in, in the sense that the permits are different from Indiana. So like the rules to, to build out, like, so how do we expedite that process in a way that is efficient and also affordable? And yeah, I would think that franchising support itself is yeah. mean, it's a big deal. Yes, exactly. I mean, they're going to call us with questions and and, and already um, we have somebody that's pretty much on the hook for franchising in a, in, a, in a state. And he already has a lot of questions for us. And, you know, he sends us messages and we have to respond. And, you know, if we if we get to 20, 30 franchises, well, all those all those inquiries are just gonna you know quadruple well yeah if they're all opening within five years i mean that's, exactly that's so i mean you're gonna need now someone representing just like the franchise side of the business so i mean we understand all that and we think we're ready for that um it's, it's gonna be a tough road but i mean some would say that building four shops in in two years was tough and <laughs> i think that we did it pretty pretty well so it's it's been a fun journey and i think that no, four shops allow you to really have an impact in one state. Right. So if we go to Illinois, we're probably going to do four shops there. If we go to any state, we're going to probably four is our magical number. And then aside from that, if there's any other extra shops in those states, whether it's Indiana, Chicago, there'll be franchise uh, locations. Okay. The next state you look at would be 
you know what? I don't know if my competition is listening to this podcast right now. So I got to be very careful about what I say. <laughs> I would say this. I would say Your competition is, for Howard Schultz, is, Howard, yeah, is, is Howard Schultz <laughs> listening to this. Um, <laughs> I would say that we really have our eyes on Atlanta. Atlanta is a market that's it's a super hot market. It's very diverse. It has a lot of Muslim people. It has a lot of everyone. And also it allows me to get out of Indiana during the winter and like go to a place that's a little bit warmer. So I definitely don't want to spend my winter in Chicago uh, or Indiana. But I think that it's it's important to open up shops and places that you kind of want to go to because you'll you'll go to these places a lot. Um, even our four locations, it's like we go to our locations all the time. Me and uh, Shazay. So let's, let's say you were going to go to Atlanta. I'm sorry if I misheard what you said before. So would the idea be to have a corporate location and then franchise locations? So we would do like four corporately owned locations and yeah. then any extra locations after that would be franchise locations. I got you. Okay. And what that would do is it would allow those franchises to benefit. So for example, if someone wanted to franchise in Indiana at this point, once they open up, they're going to be doing well. Because what we learned actually is Indi like our, our reputation and our brand in Indiana is so strong that if we were to open up in Avon, for example, next month, customers would just come like we wouldn't even have to advertise because the minute we announce it, people in Avon already know who we are. People in Noblesville know who we are. People in um, Westfield and Zionsville have asked us to come. So, you know, we look at those as opportunities for franchises to like kind of just open up a location and they're just you open up your doors, you're going to be making money um, because of the hard work that we've done with our four magic number four. So the magic number four is talking about company owned four locations. corporate owned and then anything else franchise. Right. So for further growth in the Indy area, central Indiana, uh, you would entertain uh, franchisees, hundred percent. And there, there are some people that are already asking us to come, and we were, we would be looking at places like Avon, uh, uh, Zionsville, um, Westfield. Those are places that don't really have. They're, they're developing so fast that they really haven't gotten that like specialty coffee shop yet. Yeah, they have Starbucks, but a lot of people are kind of uh, over Starbucks. <laughs> All right. Well, obviously, we're going to need to check in here. Yes. <laughs> Maybe in six months. I'm yes, not even yes. sure. Hopefully, one year. And we'll be doing this interview in uh, in our uh, Chicago locations. So. Okay. <laughs> the next That's interview. Fine. Well, thank you so much for all the time. And, uh, thank you so and much yeah, for me. I can't wait to see what happens next. Thank you so much. My thanks again to Sajad Shah. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, Lawrence's Democratic city councilors and its Republican mayor are locked in a bitter legal battle over the city's 2022 budget. Reporter Taylor Wooten has the details. Also in this week's issue, Peter Blanchard and Mickey Shuey report that state officials are considering using the massive LEAP Indiana Innovation and Research District as a model for similar economic development projects across the state. And Susan Orr explains how Gleaner's Food Bank of Indiana is adopting new technology to strengthen its strategy in the fight against hunger. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And I will say that it is easier to access all of the latest news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data about central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And you might not know that we have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And that works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. 
And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. Thank you.